Amen. Be seated. Well, this morning is, I guess, like my first official uh, ministry in both the morning and the evening. And so we're going to be starting off uh, with two new books in the Bible as I um, begin my preaching series. And this morning is Mark chapter 1. Uh, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time before I read this that it is my goal this morning to, to lay us a foundation and this evening in Jonah to lay a foundation. So it might be a little bit heavy on the information side, but I hope to bring a bit of application as well. So it's just a heads up. Uh, you know, uh, some people say that I do have a little bit of a lecture style in my preaching, but I hope that that doesn't scare you this morning. Just be aware. So please open up in the scriptures to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. It's right after Matthew, chapter 28 is Mark chapter 1, and I will read for us all this morning verses 1 through 8, verses 1 through 8, and if I had the pulpit Bible, I would also tell you what page that was, but um, you could tell your neighbor. Here now as I read God's word. In the beginning of the gospel, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we had a pretty interesting weekend a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? All of Southern California was bracing for Hurricane Hillary. I guess it was all over the major news outlets. I don't know. I haven't bought my TV yet. Uh, it was going to be the first time in a very long time that a hurricane would make landfall in California. You know who was especially nervous about Hillary? It was Siri. It was, it was my cell phone. I mean, on numerous occasions, it sounded the alarm. Beep! 
And I think even it even started on Saturday evening, probably earlier than that, but I had probably had my phone turned off. Flash flood warnings abounded on my phone. The alarm blared to warn us of possible impending danger. And I don't know if it does this in California, but in Taiwan, right before an earthquake, uh, because earthquakes are almost sudden with no notice, the same thing on our cell phone makes that prolonged beep noise. I had this happen once while underground waiting for the subway. A hundred phones go off. Then a hundred startled people look at each other. What do we do now? It's an alarm. It's a warning. There is possible imminent danger. Well, why do I mention this? Well, it has a lot to do with how Mark, Peter's sidekick, introduces this gospel. It's abrupt. It seems all of a sudden, of course, he is not warning in this section of a hurricane or an earthquake to come, though it indeed would be disastrous for anyone who would not pay attention or to take seriously what Mark is about to say and what John the baptizer is about to proclaim. Instead, it's gospel. It's glad tidings. As the angels proclaimed in Luke's gospel, it is good news. It's the best news that anyone has ever heard in over 400 years and will ever, ever hear. And he wants to get your attention. He wants to stop you in your tracks and to take a moment to reflect upon and read about and renew your trust in Jesus, the servant king. So Mark introduces his gospel. It's very straightforward and to the point here. In verse 1 he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's it. And what is significant about this title that Mark gives this book? As you have probably learned before, each of the four Gospels approach the life and ministry of Jesus Christ from different angles, from different perspectives. If you look at the first chapter of each of the other Gospels, you notice when they begin talking about Jesus. Matthew and Luke provide genealogies, which trace back to Abraham, their common ancestor, and Adam, mankind's first dad. And John doesn't have a genealogy, but instead he speaks of Jesus as the Word who was there in the beginning. Now, Mark doesn't trace Jesus' origins, but instead he focuses on what is important to him. The fact that Jesus was in the beginning but also in the same style of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jesus is the beginning of the gospel. And someone said the Bible begins with the story of creation, but the gospel begins with a story of recreation 
You see, it's about beginnings. This is so evident in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And right away, even before he unfolds the intricacies of Jesus' life and ministry, he lays it out there. He says, it's the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the only one who is mighty to save, the one who accomplished salvation for all who would call on his name by faith. He is the only one who will make his people new creation. Jesus Christ, the eternal, the divine Son of God. And so doing, he wakes up the reader from his slumber. And he wants to refocus your attention on what is most important. As you look into the radiance and glory of God himself. And he wants us to pause and to ponder these amazing truths. So right away, we see something of the urgency of Paul's writing. No, we haven't encountered the word immediately or right away quite yet. But right away, Mark gets to the point. He gets to the gospel. And he wants us to get to it right away too. In these first eight verses, we only see the mention of Jesus once. And that's in verse 1. But the remaining several verses describe John the baptizer, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' relative. He's Jesus' cousin. And it would be so easy for us to think then that John is the main character in these verses. But that would be fooling ourselves. Yes, we read briefly of John's ministry and his fulfillment of prophecy and what he wore and what he proclaimed, but we are fooling ourselves if we think that it is about John. John did, in fact, fulfill prophecy given hundreds of years ago, but his fulfillment points to and ushers in the actual one whom it is about, namely Jesus Christ himself. And as we will learn tonight in the prophet Jonah, it is not about the fish. Here, it is not about John. It's about God the Son. But in order to grasp it, we need to figure out what's going on here with John. John, Jesus' own cousin, would never take any credit, even though... He was the prophesied one who would precede Jesus. And you need to remember that in your own lives as well. You can never take any credit for your own accomplishments in the gospel. All glory to Christ. All glory to God. Well, there are a few points I think that we can get from these eight verses. And the first point is, God is not in a hurry. God is not waiting for something. God does not need to adjust his speed to accomplish whatever he wills. 
God's timing does not depend on what his creatures do or think or how they respond. God is not in a hurry. In verses 2 and 3, we read, As it is written in the gospel, in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. It's almost as if people were going about their daily lives, doing whatever they were doing, (laughs) maybe eating dinner or doing homework or or watching TV or whatever it is, and then the TV makes that blasting alert. I'm not sure what it is like now, but when I was young, we would be watching a program or a show and all of a sudden the screen would turn black or there would be colored stripes crossing that 19-inch box screen. And then uh, then there would be that annoying beep or, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Then the announcer's voice would say, we interrupt this program with news that the USA has deployed troops to... Kuwait amid the horrible war that is going on in the region, right? You've heard that. Or there has just been an earthquake measuring 7.0 on the Richter scale in Landers, California, right? It was something that every family that was watching the TV, every family in the USA needed to know, and they needed to know it now. Well, the prophets break in. God resumes speaking to his people after hundreds of years of silence. And he says what every person needs to hear. He's sending a messenger and that messenger will prepare the way for the Lord to make his path straight. Now, you look at these verses for a minute. Mark introduces this quote by saying it is written in Isaiah the prophet. In other versions, it says it is written in the prophets. And if you look carefully, it is the only, it's only in verse 3 that a quote from Isaiah 43 is seen. But Isaiah spent most of his book writing about the Messiah who was to come. But he begins his quote with a quote from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 where he prophesies, his messenger being sent to his people who will prepare the way before him. Also, you might see Exodus 23.20 alluded to as well, where God promises his angel, his messenger, to lead them out of Egypt. So you see that John the baptizer was a fulfillment of the promise of God. And John was going to appear on the scene an entire 400 years after the completion of the Old Testament canon, 500 years after Malachi made his prophecy, 700 years after Isaiah, and if there is actually an allusion to Exodus 23, then it was an entire 1,200 years later. God was not in haste. Friends, be assured what he promises, he will do in his time. And what did the promise of sending a messenger entail anyway? What 
was the big deal. Well, back in Exodus, God was going to send his messenger to lead his people out of Egypt through the wilderness into their promised land. And in Malachi, God's messenger will suddenly come to his temple. But the temple was going to be destroyed in 70 AD. But he would come and dwell, the word in Greek, to tent among his people. Well, who in the New Testament would be built together into the temple of God. But what had to be done? Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5 say this, and listen carefully. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I don't know if you have ever seen, either in real life or on discovery, a new road being built. The tractors and the bulldozers are brought in to knock down trees and level out the ground. Explosives might be used to to blow up the rock as they're cutting roads and cutting the path through the mountains for that new road to be built. Huge amounts of gravel need to be hauled in to fill, fill in the crevices. And heavy equipment needs to be used to compact everything tightly to ensure no erosion due to rain or wind will occur. And I guess in Angeles Oaks it wasn't tight enough or maybe it was too much rain. Then the asphalt is laid and then the, the lines painted and so on and so on. But again, this is after 400 years of silence. The voice of John the baptizer says Jesus would accomplish such a feat in the spiritual realm. The Lord would be pleased to use the word of his final Old Testament prophet, John, to prepare the people for the arrival of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. 400 years of, of silence. But God transcends all time. He created time. And he is not in a rush to do his work. My son always seems to be in a rush to finish his homework so that he can play or do something else. Fortnite or whatever it is. But God isn't in a rush. That means two things for us today. Number one, you don't need to be in a hurry for God to do his work within you. Remember what Paul said in Philippians. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope. He is already working his perfect will in you. But at the same time, the scripture says, prepare a way. Well, are you prepared? 
That's the second thing. Are you ready? And like the prophecy, are you willing to prepare a way for Jesus by professing him to others? And that leads us to our second point. Your call to confess. Your call to confess. Your call to confess Jesus to others. Your call to confess your sins and repent. Though John the baptizer was not the Christ, he was, in fact, Jesus' cousin, who happens to appear on the scene before Jesus, according to what the Lord had promised through the angel. So he had a very important calling. He was the last Old Testament prophet, and he appears just before Jesus arrives. Now, what is he doing? You know, it's, it's very interesting. Verse 4 says that he was baptizing in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So this prophet, unlike all the Old Testament prophets who preceded him, was baptizing people. He was baptizing people. Just imagine that scene for a moment. All the people from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and all the people in between in the whole region were going out to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. Old people, young people, males, females, slaves. There must have been a few thousand people lining up along the river's banks. And from the other gospel writers, we learn that the religious zealots even, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were standing around and, and they were thinking, these people are out of their minds. But that doesn't stop these people going down to the river in droves. While John is baptizing them, while he's giving them a ceremonial washing and pointing them to the Jesus who was to come, he is also calling those Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers. Now, there is no mention of the mode of baptism here. That's not the point of the passage. But the point is that John was baptizing and he was proclaiming, he was preaching repentance for the remission of sins. Also, this was not a Christian baptism because it lacks one important thing that all sacraments need. Jesus himself has not quite entered the scene. It's not a sacrament without Jesus initiating it. But John was saying, you need to get right with the Lord. You need to turn from your sins and you need to look to Jesus. He was not like the Old Testament Jews, just performing a ceremonial washing either. Because what he was doing is he was saying that there needs to be an inward heart change. In Matthew he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is like that alarm on our phones. An earthquake is coming. A hurricane is coming. Take cover. Wake up. Friends, 
It is the same for all of us. Are you ready for Jesus to come? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? What is your confession? I know it's so easy to focus on the blessings, to focus on God's goodness. It's so easy to focus on the fact that God is loving and merciful, and that is so that is good to do. But how many of you point out the bad news and the need for repentance when you are talking about the gospel? John was not preaching a baptism of love and warm and fuzzy feelings. It was a baptism of repentance. Yes, you probably won't be very popular because it is not a popular message. But rest assured, the Lord will use the message if it is with sincerity from your heart. Now, something I want to point out from this passage, actually from verses 1 through 13, we didn't read those last verses, is that the word wilderness or desert show up four times, and then we don't see it again. But what is important about this word What is so important about this word that Mark has to emphasize it here? Well, in verse 3, we read the voice of one calling in the wilderness. The quote from the prophets. And then we see again in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness. Later on, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place of much difficulty. But it was a place that they had to go through. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness, but but God carried them through to their promised land. It was in the wilderness that the Lord performed the miraculous work of changing and forming and molding a people for himself. The wilderness was a place of intense spiritual conflict, but God always came out victorious. It was the same for his people. Theirs was a repentance, and a change of heart occurred. Brothers and sisters, you are like pilgrims. You are sojourners on this earth. We all are in our wilderness wanderings. We are all wandering to our final destination, our promised land, our heavenly home. And God, the triune God, is forming you and he is changing you. You are in this life of sanctification where you find Jesus' kindness leads you to repentance. And you repent and your minds are changed and are being transformed and one day you will meet him in glory and the battle will be won well thirdly you need to go be be going on pointing to someone else you need to be pointing to someone else your thoughts your words and your deeds should be focused away from yourself and on to someone else. You know, flashlights are a handy tool to have. 
when when it is dark and you can't find your way, you just pull out your flashlight. And then you can see. And then when you're holding your flashlight properly, you are pointing it away from yourself so you can see where you are going. And if you point it incorrectly, you could get blinded. It points away from yourself to someone else. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist knew Jesus well as a relative. He always knew that Jesus was much greater than he. It was John that was jumping in his mother's womb at the mention of Jesus' name. So when he shows up, his whole ministry is pointing away from himself onto Jesus Christ. He's, what he's saying is, I pale in comparison to Jesus. I don't even come close. Even though in verses 5 we see that there are many flocking to John as the herd, as they heard his sermon about repentance. And there are many of them getting baptized by John, even though we have just heard, learned that it was an incomplete baptism. John had much success, but Jesus, the one who is to come, would be much greater. He would have complete success. Imagine this guy, John. Imagine what he looked like. He was wearing clothing made out of camel's hair and a leather belt wrapped around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Actually, for those times, locusts were a nutritious meal, and they were lawful meal, according to Leviticus. There are many people around the world that still eat them, actually. We ate a few of them when we were in Thailand and in Cambodia. And they don't really taste all that bad. Potato chips. And look at his garb. What can make... Well, we can make an educated guess that what he was wearing showed his humility. But also, if you read Second Kings chapter 1, you see that Mark is linking John with Elijah, who was to come and announce the coming of the kingdom. Look at Elijah's clothing, too. And John preached, saying, After me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and to untie. You know, the work of slaves was to untie the sandals of their masters and to carry their masters for them, uh, carry their sandals for them when they entered a building. And John says that he can't count himself less than a slave to the one who is coming. And he acknowledges, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ would be the one who would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit, which would happen at Pentecost. Jesus would be the one who would pour out his Spirit, and by that Spirit, the redemption that he accomplished for us would be applied in our lives. You always need to be pointing away from, from yourselves and onto Jesus Christ in your words and in your actions. That means you have to have a change of mindset. 
You know, our sinful selves are so focused on ourselves. We are so self-centered. It feels good when we are praised. And we love to feel good. But you need to be pointing to Jesus. You need to lead the people to the rock that is higher than I. You need to realize that you cannot save anyone or get anyone saved. Only Jesus does that. (laughs) John the baptizer was a man of God. And God used him. He was a fulfillment of hundreds of years of biblical prophecy. And he preached repentance. Thousands of people from all over the region came to be baptized. But John did not take any credit. He pointed to Jesus. May we all also do the same and point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you as we have begun to embark in this new book of the Bible for this new season that you've helped us to see that Jesus Christ is first and foremost, that Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be worried whether or not you're working in the lives of us, your people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.